Hi, this is Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, and we are joined today by City Council Member Elizabeth Crowley. Thanks for joining us. Hi, well, good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Jarrett and Ben. Um, good it's, it's good to talk with you. Uh, we're talking with you just a day after you had a marathon hearing that you chaired on the initial progress of closing Rikers, um, and we're also talking with you just a few weeks before your your term and your tenure in the council is ending. So a lot to lot to chat with you about. Yeah, and just for listeners who might have heard your name and not know much about you, just how about a kind of brief bio? How did you get to be to be here? Okay, well, uh, I'm a New Yorker through and through. I was born and raised in Queens. Uh, think of myself as a Queens kid. Kid, I feel like I'm still very young. <laughs> still, I just celebrated my 40th birthday, and for my 30s, I was a council member representing a part of Queens that never had a woman or never had a Democrat represent. Uh, I come from a big family, proud of my big family. I'm one of 15 children. I have 14 brothers and sisters. <laughs> and uh, my parents were uh, people who instilled public service in me and my siblings growing up. Uh, they were very much involved in our community. And so I, I think it was no surprise to the rest of my family when I got more involved and ran for office. But prior to that, I was you know, a working mother I, and a union member. I worked on construction sites in a non-traditional way as a painter, a card-carrying union painter. I studied art restoration in college and urban planning in grad school. And uh, my work and experience, both uh, from my family and, and from uh, working in the field, helped me greatly when I went to the council. It really shaped um, the, the work that I did, you know, certainly as a union member, the, the perspective of a working uh, person and needing a voice in government, uh, that experience lent itself to my work in the council. Certainly as a working mother, making sure that her kids who attend public schools had the best opportunity and that all our kids did. Uh, so prioritizing public education. And then being the chair over the last eight years of the Fire and Criminal Justice Committee Emergency services for all New Yorkers was a priority and improving that. And especially uh, now, as you mentioned, yesterday's hearing, um, the closing of Rikers Island. It was really, uh, I look at it as a civil rights issue. You have some situations that are um, pretty sad when you think of the tragedy of Khalif Browder. And, uh, you know, there's no. You know, as a, an elected official and as a New Yorker, I always want to make sure that if anybody's a danger to our communities uh, and that they're a violent felon, that they're off the streets and, you know, in protected custody. But we want to make sure also that we don't have stories like that repeat itself. It's, you know, a young kid, 16, 17-year-old, sitting on Rikers Island, uh, uh, getting violated, getting beat up, and uh, all because their family couldn't afford to put up a few hundred dollars worth of bail. It's just not right, it's not fair, and situations like that should not happen here in the most progressive city in the whole entire country. Did it take some convincing for you to come around on this idea of closing down the Rikers jails? I mean, that's a, that, now it's become a little bit more normalized, but it's still a monumental thing for the city to think about. Yeah, how did you, how did you get there? And also, well, you know, I also want, as part of that question, you know, I also th would think that that might not be the most popular thing in your district. No, yeah, sure, we, we can get to that in a minute. <laughs> sure. But I think the first time I said we should close down Rikers, it wasn't even discussed yet. I remember being at uh, a rally uh, trying to get funding for alternatives to incarceration 
uh, in the city's budget and try to increase those funds because I firmly believe that if you prevent somebody from going to jail in the first place, you're more likely to help them uh, get uh, situated in a community and uh, if you do uh, not have that opportunity and go to jail, I feel like a lot of times people get hardened and become uh, a recidivist and, and continue to revisit. And it's not just my feelings, it's statistics that show that. So having alternatives to incarceration in the first place is really uh, uh, you know, an investment in and the city needs to continue to make, and the more they put in programs like that, the less they're spending criminal justice reform. And so it's not only just like fiscally responsible, but, it, but it's morally responsible. When people wind up on jail, you know, the uh, controller's report shows that they lose jobs, that they get kicked out of their apartment, family falls apart. And if it's not necessary, if they're not violent or a danger to their community, they should not be going to jail in the first place. This is something I've understood as the chair of the committee, and I've always advocated for more and more funding. So there was one year uh, prior to the speaker uh, making that bold announcement in her State of the City address two years ago that I did say we should close down Rikers Island. You know, it didn't... It, sort of just a thought yeah, that occurred well, to you, you know, like looking at people, all this data. People had said it, but you know, it's like, you know, we... I knew as chair all the money that we would waste, how much it costs to incarcerate, incarcerate one person, how the vast majority of the people have not been convicted yet. And if they have, I always felt that they should be sent to upstate, to an upstate prison, even if it's just uh, for two months. Uh, but because we're, we're paying for it, we shouldn't have to pay for it in the city. And uh, space is a premium here. And so, so, but when it comes to um, closing down Rikers, I, uh, I felt like, yes, it was the right thing to do. Then, you know, when, when people would just like, I, I, you know, not seriously about saying we're going to do this and put a plan together, but there's nothing good that ever came out of uh, Rikers Island. It, it's, you know, uh, we've had, in the course of the eight years that I've been chair, uh, and I've had roughly, let's say, 80 different hearings. Uh, you know, we've had at least 10 hearings every year. About 50% of them have been on criminal justice and have been about what happens. Um, and each year, it, 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 it seemed that no matter how much more money you were giving, uh, that the statistics got worse and worse. The only good thing was the population was decreasing. And uh, the reality was that it, even though the population was decreasing and fewer people were being <coughs> excuse me, impacted, um, that those that were there are having a much worse experience than those that were there the year before or two years before. So it, it, it seemed that no matter how much money you would give uh, and how much change you'd try to bring about, or real reform, nothing uh, was getting better and that it made sense to start from scratch. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the hearing, um, I don't want to spend too much time on it because we have a limited amount of time with you, but do you feel, um, or what's your big sort of takeaway from the... <clears throat> from the hearing that you chaired where, you know, representatives of the administration said, you know, we're on our incremental path here to this 10-year timeline, and lots of council members said, you're not that prepared to be here in front of us and you don't have a real plan. Right, right. I don't think the mayor has been proactive about closing down Rikers Island. I think he was resistant to, to supporting it or making it the policy of the city of New York. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's been clear uh, 
not only with the hearing yesterday, but the way the Department of Correction moves so slowly to bring about real reform. Going back to, you know, when the federal government sued and said its recommendations back in 2014, shortly after the mayor became the mayor, uh, they recommended that 16 and 17 year olds be removed off the island. And even at that time, we had a facility in the Bronx, which they're now going to use, that sat half empty. And another facility in Brooklyn that sat half empty. And that had juveniles there. And some were 16 and 17. So we had the capacity and the space to house them off the island. But there was no a real movement towards doing that until the state stepped in and said, we raised the age of criminality now, and you have to move them off the island and do it at least by the you know drop dead and uh, date being October 2018, but try to do it sooner in April. That's only 150 uh, inmates and the most vulnerable population. They uh, still are dragging their feet. I hope that they meet that deadline. But if they're looking at a, a much larger uh, amount of inmates that have to be placed in other parts of the city, um, I don't have a whole lot of faith in this administration meeting their timelines based on them not meeting uh, the timelines in the past. Now, this hard timeline for the 16 and 17-year-olds was put forth by the state, but um, just yesterday when they were asked a question about online bail, uh, something that would really reduce the number of inmates. You have, uh, I think, when you look at the population, is a transient population. It comes in and out very quickly. The vast majority, uh, once their family puts up bail in that first week, wouldn't you want to make sure that we could do everything we can to prevent them from even getting onto the island and, and through the intake process if their family could, uh, in the most efficient way, post that bail? It's incredible in 2017 that you can't can't pay can't pay bail online and. And I think what you were um, getting at there is they're even behind their own targets. A whole year. On, on, a whole year. And something so simple. So closing down Rikers Island is much more complicated. Right. And uh, so uh, out of the hearing yesterday, uh, it, it was very frustrating. Uh, but I, I can't say that I was surprised, just based on them not even releasing the RFP about uh, their next plan. You know? They currently have a plan to have another plan, yet uh, we've already offered them the, the footprints in three different boroughs, which is nearly 75% of the population, to use uh, those existing buildings to help uh, move the population off the island. We've made it quite simple. Uh, the council has helped in that. The commission uh, has also uh, laid the groundwork. And there's no new ideas from this administration, and they're, they're slow to react, and that's basically what they do. They react instead of being proactive. And you're referring, of course, to the Lippman Commission there that uh, the council speaker put together, and he, he was frustrated at the at the hearing I saw. He was, yeah. <laughs> and, and one thing that came out of the hearing came up quite a bit is your colleagues and a few of the witnesses sort of crediting you for making yourself politically vulnerable by, you know, supporting closing records, and others right. have also said that, you know, your position on uh, the question of homeless shelter siting um, also made you, put you at risk. Right. Um, looking at, at the election, you know, you've had a little time, I guess, to digest it. You probably need some more time. But what do you think contributed to your defeat? And, and were you, did you, did you see it coming? Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, I often joke around and say my section of Queens is the Staten Island section of Queens. Because my voters vote like voters in Staten Island. And we... I would say 80% of the district is not served by transportation. So, so it has a lot of similarities uh, to 
the borough of Staten Island, in that sense where people are removed and don't necessarily think like uh, progressive New Yorkers. But, uh, and then, then that came up in the hearing yesterday, how Staten Island is the only borough where the mayor is not taking a stance and saying we're going to put a jail there, and how uh, Judge Littman said that we, we should. Uh, because it's important, and my colleague said the same thing. It, you know, it's important, not just uh, monetarily, uh, but you need to make sure that each borough is taking their own fair share. And uh, for the mayor, he was slow to get on ball, you know, slow to get on board in supporting uh, Rikers Island because so many New Yorkers didn't understand why we needed to, I believe. It was a political move, and same with him not wanting to put one or plan for one in Staten Island. It's a political move. It's not necessarily popular and it's a complicated subject for many New Yorkers, especially the people in my district or the people in Staten Island, to understand. Uh, so, you know, we need leaders to be real leaders, yeah, you, to take bold you, stances. I don't know the word. Do you resent the mayor for not better articulating his strategy on Rikers and on homelessness? Did that put a person like you who did take stands supporting homeless shelters and supporting the closing of Rikers? Right. Did that, did that contribute no, to your, I, I to your don't, risk? No, I don't resent the mayor for that. Not at all. Um, I think, um, you know, when you look back at my race, you had to be in, in it day in and day out to understand. And, and uh, I've always been very independent of the mayor. Voters should have known that, even when it came to his homeless policy, or even when it came to me just hearing the hearing that I had yesterday. So what is a Rikers Island position, uh, a homelessness position? I've always been independent, independent of the mayor or independent of the mayor before him, um, independent of the council speakers. It's just uh, part of who I am. And I don't take political stances based on uh, the popularity. I, I take uh, stances on what I feel is right. And I think that's the difference of being a, a leader and, and a follower. And I took a bold stance that I have no regrets taking. I had, I've had nine good years representing a district that's never had a woman and never had a Democrat. And I am proud to be a Democrat. When I ran against my opponent in a Democratic primary, I beat him by over 30%. I had over nearly 64% of the vote. He had like 30 you know, it's two to one. Uh, when it comes to the difference between me and him, he ran on a conservative line. He is, you know, subscribes, you know, in addition to running as a Republican, he took that party line. And even in the debates that we've had, uh, we're very different types of people. That party is, is not the party that supports a woman's right to choose. It even supports the death penalty. So it's not even about closing Rikers. My opponent was out there calling people on Rikers, the inmates, convicts, when we all know the vast majority of them haven't been convicted. Um, so I'm proud of being a Democrat. I'm proud of the difficult stances that I've taken. And I'm proud of the difference between me and my opponent, who will be my successor in the council. And, and I'm proud of the democratic process where people come out and have an opportunity to vote. But I know that the campaign I ran was honest. It was with integrity and hard work, not only uh, in the months that I was running my campaign, but in the years that I brought about real change to the district that I represent. When, you, when you've done a little bit of looking back, I mean, uh, oh gosh, I don't have it in front of me anymore, but 130-something votes, or yeah. a very, very small number. Um, 
that separated you in the end, are there are there things that um, you think really sort of shifted the dynamic? What 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 do you think in the end made the difference? Um, it seems like you're getting at a little bit of you know that there was some fear mongering in the in yeah, the rhetoric, but but what? When are, I look back at my actions, I don't think I could have done anything differently, or like even today, you know, I, when I when I looked. At, when we strategized on a campaign, we knew the type of voters that voted for me were the younger voters, were the working people. Uh, and th those that aligned more with my opponent were the people who didn't like to see change, and they tend to be the older voters. I mean, even my opponent said, you know, if, if it was up to him, I think he would still like to see our part of Queens as farmland. He doesn't like change. So that day was a beautiful sunny day in the morning, and then in the afternoon the sky opens up, it became very cold, dark, and it rained buckets. So if I can look back and say, oh, I could have got 100 votes here. Could've... I couldn't control the weather either. And I think that <laughs> impacted the Democratic voter who was working and who, would, who had seen how well I did in the primary and said, ah, she has it. You know, I may not need to come out and vote today. That being that, and the other thing is my, the mayor wasn't so popular in my district. And my voters voted against him nearly two to one. I think, you know, when you look at the numbers, he probably only got about 32% of the vote. It's hard when the top of the ticket is not believed in as much as the voter. Right. Or while your opponent tries to tie you uh, to the unpopular Democrat in the district. And uh, so I, I definitely think that that had some impact. You mentioned that you're proud to have been the first woman to have represented mm -hmm. this district. And obviously one consequence of your defeat is that what was already going to be a, a, a light session in terms of uh, female representation will be, will be one less. Why do you think the gender gap is that big on the council? And what practical effect does it have? When you look at the stuff that goes on across the, the street, things like Rikers, how does having a, a woman's voice um, matter and and what are you afraid uh, will be sort of diminished by it not being as present in the next four years? Interesting. If you look at yesterday and how many people spoke on the panel, testified, and not those that had been incarcerated, but rather the leaders who are running the nonprofits and the non-government organizations and trying to bring about change, were a lot of women. Uh, women are change makers. They're change makers in their community. And they need to think of themselves more as political leaders, as being uh, somebody who should be in government and running for office. And if we have more women running for office, then we'll have more women holding office. Studies have shown that if women ran at the same frequency as men, that you would have a more equal number. Is it a problem? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm proud of the work that I've done while I was in the council as co-chair of the Women's Caucus. I'm proud of the bills that I've been able to uh, get passed, the different laws that uh, call for more accountability uh, and fairness as it comes to uh, gender uh, parity. Um, you know, and some of the work that I did actually laid the foundation, I believe, for, to help women run for office and believe in themselves. Together with Melissa Mark Veverita, I started uh, a nonprofit called 21 in 21. When we started putting our heads together to form this nonprofit, we knew that it was too late for 2017. And in order for someone to run a successful campaign, they have to work on it years out. And they have to, uh, you know, understand 
you know, that you need to be involved in your community. Uh, you need to be able to uh, raise money. Uh, and those are, you know, just, just part of what it takes. But first and foremost, believing in yourself as a, a change maker and as one that could hold office too is important. And we need more women thinking that in order to see uh, a better balance. So there's going to be 11 women in this next council class, and then the goal, as you say, in 21 and 21, is for the 2021 elections to see uh, around at a least minimum, a minimum right? of at 21 least. in the 51 member body. Um, are do you want to be one of those 21? I mean, are no, you I, I'm not looking to, at to running it again like that. I, I'm. We have 37, approximately 36, 37 seats that will be open. So. Uh, at least you're not running against the incumbent, which is a more difficult uh, election to win. Uh, but if if we look at those areas and two, and, and then start cultivating women in every district, I think that we will have an opportunity to run really good candidates who uh, voters will see uh, as the best choice to represent them in the city council. So just I, I get yeah. that larger approach, right. but our. Um, are you thinking about running I'm again? I'm not thinking about running radar? again for city council. No, yeah. I've had the, the nine years. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of what I've been able to do for my community. I and mean, we've, uh, we've built 5,400 new classroom seats. It may not seem like a lot, but when you look at my district, it was one of the most overcrowded school districts in the city. It's, big it's not. It's significant. It was, you know, over $500 million in school construction. I was able to uh, pass legislation that improved uh, you know, bring brought gym teachers to every single school. That that didn't happen. Uh, I spoke a little bit about the work that I was able to do uh, as women's chair. Just other. That's more of like a, a, a citywide stuff. But infrastructure projects and and the meat and potato that I was able to do, well, making the largest historic district outside of Manhattan and Queens. Uh, those are achievements that I'm very proud of. But I've had the time there, and I look at my time and, and the record, and I think, you know, it's a chapter in my life that I feel it's closing and that a new chapter will begin. I'm very optimistic about the, the future. And, um, you know, I'm going to take the same type of energy, determination, and I feel more determined than ever before uh, to make sure that my next chapter is one uh, that I will, will do the same type of uh, you know, type of good public service work and, and make the city a better place to live. And uh, so, so we are going to get you out of here because we know you have to, you have to cut. Um, my last question to you, and, and I heard you say there, you're not going to run for city council again. So, so we know that running again, you know, and that's uh, maybe in your blood for something else. But um, I mean, and I shouldn't say I'm not going to do this or not going to do that. It's not in my plans. I'm mm -hmm. proud of the work that I did. I feel like. I feel like it was a chapter, and that chapter is, is coming to an end, and and I'm looking forward to the next chapter. Since you're not going to be in the council and you don't have to worry about upsetting anybody uh, there, there's a race for city council speaker going on. Yeah. Is there someone that you think is the best candidate? Uh, no, I think that they're all very good candidates. I'm going to leave it to uh, the council members to decide which one they believe in. Okay. And last question, um, what's the one thing that you would like to have accomplished uh, in the next term that you hope someone else picks up? Uh, improving transportation in Queens. And uh, I was able to get a project funded uh, to study the Lower Montauk Line, which runs from Jamaica to Long Island City. But Queens, the borough that I love and was born and raised in, still living, raising my own two kids, 
is uh, becoming more and more crowded. Planners have not planned efficiently for the growth. And uh, when it comes to moving us uh, around the borough and into other boroughs, we need more options. And, and I believe that we need more infrastructure and more opportunities to invest in uh, Queens and in public transportation. Councilmember Elizabeth Crowley, thanks for joining us. We'll, we'll talk to you more at uh, another time soon, and we wish you luck in the future. Thanks, Thank Ben you. and Jared.